Well, thank you for joining me today. It's always good to talk Mets and Marlins. Um, so the Mets and Marlins, I've already met uh, once this season for a four-game series. After this weekend, they will have played uh, seven of their 12 games. Now the, the schedule has changed a little bit. How are you feeling about the Marlins through their first week and a half or so of baseball? Uh, I'm just happy to be back on the roller coaster again with this team because it was just a couple of days ago that it was full-blown panic mode. They lost three or four to the Mets, and then they lost really badly to the Twins the very next game. And there were all these sorts of big picture. It was a crisis. It was a crisis among people that expected to see a much different Marlins team than the year before. And so many common things popped up again this year. But when you have Sandy Alcantara and Jesus Lazardo pitching back-to-back the way that they did the last two days, it kind of writes the ship. And we're at a point where it does look very similar to what I anticipated. The top end of this rotation that the Marlins have can be about as good as any top end of any rotation. And their bullpen has improved. The, we expected more offensive, more power production, more home run power than last year. And that seems to be coming to fruition now that uh, Jorge Soler, Jastism Jr. are healthy again. And then everything else is a question in terms of their defense playing half of their players in unusual positions. Just a lot of fundamental issues in terms of situational hitting and in base running as well. You could argue they've been the worst base running team in the majors through this point in the season. It's it's a team of extremes. And so you add it all together, and they're actually, right now they're tied with the Mets entering the series fairly close to 500. And this, this is a team that I believe has the best chance in a while over a full-length season for the Marlins to actually float with the 500 mark. Okay. Uh, you mentioned players playing out of position. To me, the most egregious of that is, of course, Jazz Chisholm, who is a career infielder playing center field this year. Now, we we often hear that, you know, uh, a shortstop moving to center field is not that unusual of a move in terms of uh, the raw ability. Oftentimes, that's a pretty comparable position in terms of athletic ability. But for someone who's played their whole career there, there is certainly a a an approach to playing, a sh- playing shortstop that is very different than the approach of playing center field so how do you feel about Chisholm as a center fielder thus far and do you think this is an experiment that will yield a different answer come August or September or do you think this is sort of the Jazz Chisholm and center field experience well you touched on it in that his entire professional career to this point he never played any outfield much less center field but no outfield whatsoever coming up through the minors and through the majors so the lack of familiarity I think that does make it unusual that he hadn't even like dipped his toe into the water until two and a half months ago during the team off-season workouts. For that to come out of nowhere, um, there was some optimism that he would go into like a boot camp with their new coaching staff and learn it as quickly as possible, all the subtleties about playing the position. And and I think the results have been disappointing, all things considered. I think anybody that had optimism about him making this conversion, and he more so than anybody else, he's been vocal about the fact that he was going to embrace this transition and become great there immediately, from actually the evidence going back to spring training and now in the real games is that this is going to be another weakness for this defense. There's just so many plays that he's not accustomed to making. And um, it's, it looks a little bit better than maybe it did at the start of spring, yet it's still a deficiency for the team. I have a hard time seeing this being more than a one-year experiment. Maybe he does get better as the year goes on. I, I would say I would lean towards that being likely, that they're determined to stick with it this year. It's just that once we get beyond this point, this was always supposed to be a stopgap until they had a better internal solution or until 
the front office finally felt the pressure to acquire a surefire experienced center fielder from outside the organization. So for, for the listeners who maybe don't follow these teams as closely as you and I do, um, from what I gather, this is more of a problem of the Marlins not having a center fielder more than the Marlins having too many shortstops, correct? They had a center fielder in Starling Marte that was extremely popular and very productive in 2021. And then they were unable to come to terms on an extension with him. And now he's on the other side of this matchup. Maybe he wasn't going to be a long-term center fielder anyway, just given where he is in his career arc. They had other opportunities to go outside the organization. There's yet another new rumor that came out today from Ken Rosenthal, the athletic, that there were conversations with the Cardinals to acquire Tyler O'Neill over the offseason. And apparently those didn't actually make wow. it very far. They, they've checked in with a lot of potential center field, mainly in trades, given how expensive these guys are in free agency. They, they've mm-hmm. looked around. And yeah, it has been a void in the organization ever since they traded Marte, which is now almost two full years ago. Right. In terms of the the prospects down on the farm, is there a center fielder or an outfielder in general that you think is going to be that impact player for the Marlins in the next year or two? The short answer is no. <laughs> I'd say the one that <laughs> maybe I'm a little bit higher on than others that I think has a chance is Peyton Burdick. He debuted last year down the stretch, didn't hit very consistently. And he's not a conventional center fielder defensively. He has played more of it than was expected to early in his pro career. He's supposed to be just this beefy corner outfielder type, and he's beefier than ever, but he's actually, that athleticism is makes him playable in center field. Uh, he has really immense power. He's a three true outcomes type of guy. A lot of home runs, a lot of walks, a lot of strikeouts, and I think he'll be much better once he gets a second taste of the big leagues as this year goes on. I'd be surprised, though, if he's like an everyday solution other than that you just have to look really deep on their farm system at the international free agents that they've signed the last couple of years um jose gerardo who is only 17 years old and is not yet even on a full season minor league roster he has immense tools it's just that he you know that's many years not just one yeah um, we're, and, we're talking four or five years minimum yeah right it, by this point the one player that you circle that was supposed to be up with the team at this point at that position is Victor Victor Mesa, who they signed to a $5 million bonus in late 2018. Very experienced player in Cuba at the time. He was supposed to be fast-tracked to the majors, and he just simply has not been able to hit whatsoever. So he's a very good center fielder, um, but the, there's just no element of the offensive profile that's there to make him playable at this point. So they are kind of stuck in this situation where if it's not Jazz playing for right now, um, really the backup right at this point is Brian De La Cruz, who at times has been a terrific hitter and at times has been a terrific defender, but lacking a lot of consistency. So not an ideal option in, in that spot either. Sure. Now, um, let's talk about the series between the Mets and the Marlins that happened opening weekend. As you mentioned, the Mets won three or four. Uh, Sandy Alcantara did what he does. You know, the Mets were able to get to him a little bit, but Alcantara is always impressive. You mentioned um, Jesus Lazardo, who looks great as well. You know, from there, the Marlins pitching didn't hold up as well as maybe, you know, like you, you mentioned that you had hoped. But the team does, to me, seem like it has, you mentioned before, this is maybe the team that has the best chance of getting to 500 this season. I always 
don't like playing the Marlins because I feel like the Marlins are a team that has so much young talent, but it's just hard to get all that talent firing on all cylinders at the same time. Sometimes it seems like there's a player that's hot and someone else is cold. You know, Trevor Rogers had a great year two seasons ago. Last year, he didn't have such a great season. These things sort of come and go with the team. Do you see when you watch the team, do you see that inconsistency or is this something that I'm seeing just because of my vantage point as a Mets fan? I think that's a very fair summation of it. Maybe a generous summation. There was a lot of times, especially last year, where nobody was hot at a particular time. They had stretches where offensively they went almost a full week without scoring a run. Um, just historic levels of terribleness on that front. So I think that's generous to even say that they're like alternating between hot and cold. That would be a very fortunate outcome to have. <laughs> that's, that's a big reason why they overhauled the coaching staff this past offseason with Don Mattingly going out and most of his other um, lieutenants going out and being replaced, bringing in other minds, generally uh, this new group being younger and also being more data savvy than the previous group, more hands-on also with the communication they have with players and coming up with suggestions, trying to fix some of their inconsistencies before they go into slumps and being proactive in that way. Um, unfortunately, on the hitting side, that is still a work in progress. This new, whatever they're doing under hitting coach Brant Brown, um, the hitters absolutely rave about him and some of the differences he's bringing compared to what they used to have. It's just the results are not there whatsoever. So what's been so confusing with this team right now uh, offensively is so much swing and miss. They are leading the majors in strikeout rate right now, striking out almost a third of their plate appearances after an offseason that was focused very specifically on cutting down on the strikeouts with the acquisitions they made of Luis Arise and Gene Segura and Yuli Gurriel. These are guys that, if nothing else, you trust them to get the bat on the ball. And for whatever reason, across like this entire roster, um, there's a lot of these players that are striking out even more than historically they do. I, I hope that's just a small sample size thing or just an adjustment to exactly what type of messaging they're getting from the coaching staff at this point. That That's a concern, of course, because the path for this team to improve from one year to the next was a lot of it was just going to rely simply on the offense, making more productive outs and getting more extra base hits and doing everything better. And, and to this point, they're doing some things better, but somehow the strikeout rate is going in the wrong direction. And that's why at this point in the season, they've been one of the least productive teams on that side of the ball. Now, um, you know, you mentioned the the rough loss early in the week against the twins. They came back and had two nice wins how are you feeling about the team's uh, sort of momentum going into New York this weekend? It, it turns very quickly. I, simply coming off those two games they had, that flipped it around. The concern is that because it was flipped around mainly because of Alcantara and Luzardo, and those are two pitchers we don't expect to see in this Mets series. Um, it'll be Friday, Edward Cabrera, and then Saturday, Trevor Rogers. Sunday, not yet announced. It could be Sandy on regular rest, but I think it's more likely going to be Braxton Garrett, who was just called back up from the minors. It seems that both of those, those guys at the top of the rotation, they'll be safe for the Phillies series. And I'm sure Mets fans are all right with that, having them pitch against the Absolutely Phillies. Absolutely fine, yes. Of the Mets. <laughs> uh, yeah, simply winning games is very important. And this most recent win being led offensively by Jorge Soler, that is pretty inspiring for a player that they missed so much of last year and he didn't perform the way he was supposed to. He's the highest paid, highest paid player on the team for this season. And with that comes certain levels of expectations. And to this point, 
even though he's one of the many guys that are striking out at a high volume, when he's making contact, it's been incredible quality of contact. So somebody like that, um, being who he was supposed to be after a down year, I think that that alone has raises a lot of confidence in the clubhouse that if guys get on base, there finally is at least one guy who, to this point, is driving them in when they get on base and sort of making this offense works in, in some situations. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so as, as the Marlins rep for FFSN and just as a Marlins fan in general, what are the questions you have about the Mets going into this series? What are the things that you folks are thinking about that maybe, uh, your listeners might care about that I could help shed some light on? Oh, well, that's a good question. Um, I suppose, uh, the their bullpen situation without Edwin Diaz being in the mix, how, how has that now? Uh, what what sort of hierarchy is that bullpen now set up in to finish off games? And yeah, so because this is a uh, team that uh, really wants to to this point in the season hasn't shown much of a comeback bone in them, and so they'd like that opportunity. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I, I will say the same about the Mets. You know, the Mets managed to come back a little bit yesterday before the sweep up by the Brewers was complete, but they have not been uh, the comeback kids necessarily either this season yet. Um, well, so the Mets did a lot of bullpen work this offseason in addition to re-signing Edwin Diaz, which, as we all know, he went down during the World Baseball Classic in a really uh, unfortunate way. But the Mets had re-signed Adam Adovino and signed David Robertson to contracts. They traded for Brooks Raley from the uh, Rays. They brought back Tommy Hunter, who had a, a couple of good stretches with them over the last couple of seasons. And there's a couple of young players, Drew Smith and Steven Nagosik, who have been a part of the bullpen now for the last season or so. And so the bullpen is is a nicely remade um, remade entity with Rayleigh and uh, Robertson in there. And so right now it seems like Rayleigh, Robertson, and Ottavino are sort of the big three at the end. Uh, Robertson got the first save opportunity of the year. Adovino was brought in yesterday with the game tied in the ninth inning and he wound up giving up that, those runs. So I would say that Robertson is probably the de facto closer right now, but I think that Buck Showalter is going to be a little bit more flexible in how he uses those three high leverage relievers as the season goes on. Um, my big concern with those three guys is just, well, first of all, I, I like Brooks Raley's stuff a lot. He's left-handed, which can get you into some trouble late in innings. If you have some right-handed power bats coming up, you may not want to have a lefty in there. Um, but it's great when you're playing, like, for instance, when the Phillies, when Bryce Harper's healthy and he's due up in the ninth inning of a game, that is a very nice thing to have on your in your bullpen to have a lights-out lefty reliever for the end of the game. I think Robertson's going to be the guy, but Robertson is he's not so young as he used to be. I mean, that's true of all of us, but he's, he's especially an older player for a Major League Baseball team. And he hasn't closed all that much. You know, the last couple of years, he and Adovino have both sort of been in positions where they're closing some games, but they're also being used as setup men. And I don't really know if there's much in the difference between an eighth inning and ninth inning person. I know different people have different opinions about that. But, you know, Robertson's stuff is still pretty good, but it's not quite what it was. And although this is true of almost everyone in baseball, it's not what Edwin Diaz's stuff is, right? So the Mets are really missing Diaz in that sense. But I'm not, I'm not terribly worried about the bullpen, except for the fact that the Mets have one of the oldest starting rotations in baseball. And so because of that, you're going to see more innings out of those relievers than you maybe would have gotten with a younger starting staff. And so I think that right now, as long as the Mets are not um, – 
overworking their relievers. I mean, Buck Walter has has been much better than than other managers have been in recent Mets past in terms of uh, overusing, overtaxing a bullpen arm or two. Uh, that's a the, the, uh, the new newest Met uh, acquired on waivers just before his opening day. Dennis Martinez was used three of the first four games uh, in the season. So maybe Buck is going to lean on him a little bit too much. But um, long answer to a short question. I think their bullpen is going to be OK. I would say you're probably going to see David Robertson closing games this weekend if, if it gets mm-hmm. into a save situation, um, though. We'll see. Now, if I saw this right. Entering the series, they're calling back up Francisco Alvarez from the minors. Um, so- yes, so um, Omar Narvaez got hurt in the series finale against the Brewers yesterday, and so uh, Alvarez will be up for the weekend, which is exciting for Mets fans, but also a, a bit terrifying because he, you know, so he came up very briefly at the end of last year. Uh, I, I, among others, were very critical of them bringing him up in the last series of the year against the Braves arguably the most important series of the year. You're asking someone to step into this position that they've never played before. I mean, never been in the majors before, I should say. He's played catcher his whole career. But, you know, asking him to basically step up for the first time in the biggest week it's biggest weekend of the Met of the Mets year. And he did not perform very well offensively and he didn't catch much. He was DHing a bit. And so it was a bit of a weird debut for him. And then he had offseason surgery, and this spring he looked good defensively, but hit almost nothing in spring training. And I know spring training stats don't matter that much, but you want to see a young player hitting in the spring. And, you know, the Mets had often said that unless he was going to play every day, they were going to keep him down for a while to make sure he's working on his hitting, his his defense, everything, just to make him the most complete player they can be. This was not the plan for that. They were hoping to have him down for at least a month or two to work out any kinks that were there. But Narvaez got hurt. He's the next in line. And I think you're going to see him start the bulk of the games. If he's going to be here, he's going to play. So he's probably going to split a little bit more with Tomas Nito than Narvaez would have. But um, I, I still think you're going to see him catching at least three or four games a week. And hopefully this is where his offensive potential starts to blossom a little bit because Alvarez is a special player. The Mets really believe that he has the potential to be a, you know, a franchise altering player. Um, and for a team that has so often been built on pitching, it is nice over the last few years to see guys like Pete Alonso, Brandon Nimmo, Jeff McNeil step up and be offensive pieces for the Mets. If they can add Alvarez to that along with Lindor, who came over a couple of seasons ago. Now, all of a sudden you have a really, really strong young offensive core that you can plan around for the next four or five seasons. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm a little jealous. When it was right before the start of the season that the Mets extended McNeil, what I thought was a really reasonable extension. And the reason why it yes. really stuck in my mind is because him and Luis Arias stylistically have a lot in common. When the Marlins traded for Arias, my, I at least crept to my mind that maybe they not only acquire him now, he does have some years of control left, but I thought potentially that was a candidate for them to extend as well um yeah even though it's been a, a few weeks uh, i'm curious about your reaction to the, them picking uh, even with steve cohen having so many more resources than the marlins have to extend players mm-hmm. um how, how'd you feel about them locking mcneil through what i would expect to be the rest of his prime years yeah i love it i mean mcneil is not your prototypical ball player um in terms of like a 2023 player you know he's not su- you know he hit some home runs but he's not really a power hitter he uh, 
He sprays the ball all over the field. He has a great hit tool. He has a, uh, it's funny. He has a good eye at the plate, but also as a hacker, like he, if he, if he needs to walk, he will, but he likes to put the ball in play and he will frequently. He has been a much better defender than people thought he would be at second base. He also offers some nice uh, positional flexibility as he plays the corner outfield as well. So um, it seems like at least once a week, he's going to give one of the three outfielders a rest and play set, uh, left or right field for the Mets. So I, I love McNeil as a player. I think he's, you know, he's the first Met to ever lead the entire major leagues, not just the National League in hitting, which he did last season. And um, I just think he is a – if you have him – right now he's he tends to be batting fifth behind Pete Alonso, and I, I sort of love that, even though conventionally you would think you would have him in front of Alonso um, to have another man on base. But the Mets between Nimmo and Marte and Lindor sort of have that covered. And so putting him in the five hole, he's going to see a lot of pitches because he's still protected by Mark Canna and Daniel Vogelback. Um I think he just he lengthens the lineup in a really really satisfying way for the Mets. Yeah. Um, go ahead. I think I think we can wrap it up right here. Um, yeah. I, I, real quick before, before I let you go, I, I did want to ask, uh, what is your prediction for the weekend? Oh, my, well, I'm a specialty in this because every single series uh, on our outlet, we'd be sure to do series predictions. Um, not only how many of the Marlins will win, but we always pick out a series MVP as well. In this okay. case, I've already, um, yeah, I've already made my picks. I have the Mets winning two out of three in this series. Um, yeah. Again, similar to the previous series that these two teams met, I think it's going to be a lot of very closely contested games that come down to uh, small situational things that, frankly, the Mets do a little bit better than the Marlins tend to do. But I think, who did I have as my MVP pick? Um, yeah, well, Jeff McNeil is always a very safe bet to make some sort of impact place during the course of the series. But I also think Mark Canna, um, another player that I felt would have fit the Marlins really well when he was available in free agency a year and a half ago. Uh, yeah, I, I imagine that he's going to have a pretty big impact on this series as well. Yeah, I, I feel like you got a really good sense of what Canna can be in the Miami series. But unfortunately, uh, that is not always um, – he, he's been a streakier player for the Mets than he was before coming over. Um, but I hope you're right. Um, I, I will I will echo that. I think two out of three sounds about right. The Mets had a really horrible series in Milwaukee, and I feel like they are fired up to win at home for the first series. Um, in terms of MVP, I'm going to be boring and say Francisco Lindor. Uh, he's just been so fun to watch on the defensive side of the ball. And everyone knows what he can do offensively. I think Lindor is going to have another monster year for the Mets. So, yeah, that's my MVP pick. Well, uh, Eli, thank you so much for doing this. Where can folks find you online? Well, I am, as you mentioned, our Marlins representative here on the network. Our pod is Fish on First. So if they want to find the pod-specific stuff, that is right there on Twitter, Fish on First. Uh, but me personally, I'm at Real Eli on Twitter, Real E-L-Y. Uh, covering the team on the pod, but also on fishstripes.com. Uh, yeah, we do a whole lot of comprehensive coverage of the team, uh, my entire staff, a lot of hands-on credentialed coverage as well in Miami, where there's not a whole lot of people knocking down the door to actually be at the ballpark every single game. And we take a lot of pride in covering it as closely as possible over there. So for the full comprehensive coverage that we do in across all of our different mediums, you can find us at fishstripes. Yeah, that, uh, 
it is nice when you don't have like seven local papers to uh to compete with for coverage like we do in new york unfortunately so uh yeah you guys do fantastic work over at fish stripes and at fish on first so uh thank you for joining us and uh yeah good luck this weekend you as well thanks a lot brian